From Public Radio International, this is The World. A co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. It's Thursday, August 2nd. I'm Aaron Schachter. Europe's central bank disappoints the markets as the Obama administration looks to Europe's fiscal crisis with growing concern. It's hurting the U.S. economy. That's what they care about because they've got an election in three months. So it's a mess, and they would like them to clean it up. Meanwhile, unemployed Greeks head back to the farm. Also, Putin visits the Olympics. Plus, who's that young Western guy on a roller coaster with the leader of North Korea? We find out ahead on The World. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. And by PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. It's pointless to bet against the euro. That was the message today from Mario Draghi, head of the European Central Bank. It was the second time in a week Draghi had talked up the currency, and there were hopes that today's meeting of the bank would result in a big announcement. But that didn't come, and the markets tumbled. So the euro crisis seems no closer to resolution, and that's worrying politicians inside and far outside the eurozone. The world's Clark Boyd reports. For many in Europe, today was déjà vu all over again. European political and financial leaders again promised to do what it takes to fix the eurozone's economic mess. And after the ECB meeting, bank chief Mario Draghi reiterated his commitment to the single currency. The euro, he told a news conference, is irreversible. But what did he mean by that? You don't go back to the lira or to the drachma or to whatever. It's just that's what it means. So it is. It stays. It stays. It stays. Draghi was long on rhetoric but short on specifics. He did say the ECB will at some point step in to ease the financial pressure on Spain and Italy. But Germany, Europe's economic powerhouse, isn't crazy about that idea. Such a move, the Germans argue, would take pressure off of Spain, Italy, and others to carry out much-needed reforms. It's a political showdown that has some questioning Germany's commitment to the euro. Christian Schultz is senior economist at Berenberg Bank. He says that despite some populist rhetoric, most Germans remain committed to Europe. Well, for 60 years, European integration has been the foreign policy of Germany, and more than that, it has really been the, the, what the population accepts as being the successful anchor of Germany in Europe. Now, ending the euro just leaves a big void in German foreign policy and just makes Germany, which has such a terrible history uh, in, in, in Europe over the last century, uh, leave Germany in a place where nobody in Germany wants to be. But, Schultz says, the pot is now boiling over. European officials are under not just internal pressure to fix the crisis, but are also feeling the heat from the IMF and the U.S. as well. This week, Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner was in Europe to urge action. Speaking to Bloomberg News after his return to the U.S., Geithner had this to say. Europe is roughly one-third of the global economy. I think we all have a huge strategic interest in Europe being stronger, not weakened by a long protracted crisis. And, of course, we have a huge stake in them 
managing carefully through this, not just because of the direct economic effects on us, which are significant because of our broader political and national security interests in a stronger Europe over time. The situation in Europe is worrying many American politicians, especially those facing voters in the polls later this year. It's hurting the U.S. economy. That's what they care about because they've got an election in three months. The whole world economy is slowing, and it's slowing the U.S. economy too. Mark Weisbrot is co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research in Washington. He says that the entire euro crisis has been mislabeled. It's not a debt crisis or an economic crisis. It's a political one. Europe's leaders can't agree, Weisbrot says, and the economy is tanking. And it's getting worse and really slowing the whole world economy. I mean, the world economy is projected to grow 3.5% this year as opposed to 5.3%. That's uh, more than a trillion dollars of lost income and tens of millions of jobs. Some in Europe say that the solution is greater fiscal and political integration. More Europe, not less. Paul Mortimer Lee of investment bank BNP Paribas says that's a long-term project. We see in the U.S. one parliament, it can't agree what its own budget is going to be next year. In Europe, we've got 17 parliaments. So if one parliament can't get its act together, how much more difficult is it um, coordinating 17? Of course it's going to take time, and of course it's unsatisfactory, but there's no magic wand solution to this. In other words, European officials are likely to find the same problems, but with more expensive solutions waiting for them when they get back from their August vacations. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. Greece remains at the center of Europe's financial crisis. The country is still struggling to meet European austerity demands in order to keep the bailout funds coming. Meanwhile, the Greek economy is still in the dumps and unemployment is over 20 percent. Some Greeks who've lost their jobs are returning to the profession of their fathers and grandfathers, farming, but they need some training. One place they're turning to for help is the American Farm School in the northern Greek city of Thessaloniki. It was started by an American missionary in 1904. Evangelos Vergos is director of research and adult education at the American Farm School. He says enrollment is way up. We had a rise of 149 percent in comparison to the previous year. And those were mostly unemployed, uh, people that lost their jobs, in spite of uh, their age. But also a good fraction of those were people that finished universities and they never had the opportunity to do hands-on work. And they came to us to learn more in order to be more competitive out in the market. Now, as you mentioned, a lot of the people coming to you are former office workers and things like that. How, How would you rate their chances of success? I mean, a lot of people think, oh, I'd love to get back to the land, but uh, I imagine it's not so easy. Well, my problem and my question mark relies on the fact of how many of those will stay of those type of business they chose to do because they were forced to do it in two or three years' time. Yeah, and how many will survive, do you think? Oh, God. (laughs) I see a small percentage, three to five percent. You know, the problem is that the state is not developing something for them. There's nothing institutional in place to support those people. To, to be more specific, I had, a, I had a couple here, mid-40s, and they were asking, the husband was asking me how to become a sheep producer in order to produce milk for cheese-making, feta cheese. It's a hard work. <laughs> the first thing to ask him 
was in front of his wife if he ever asked and discussed the whole thing with his wife before he gets into this kind of decision. And he said no. <laughs> well, it's better, I said to him, to find the right tune, let's say, between you outside my office and then come back and discuss the whole thing. <laughs> so you, you explained to him how hard it might be to be a sheep farmer. It is. Yeah. I have to warn him, especially to those who have no idea about farming. Are there particular crops or livestock that students are now interested in growing? Are they all coming to you wanting to be sheep farmers? It's both. First of all, we have a lot of interested people coming to learn how to organize a small farm business. However, those who come for animal production, they have in mind to produce milk for cheese. That's why we call the whole sector now agro-food sector. So they come to seminars either to produce organic food products or to learn how to produce wine, family type of operation, mm -hmm. or the best groups we have in terms of size and quality are those who come for cheese making, and not only feta, but also bee production, honey production. Well, now all of those things, Greek cheese, wine, and honey, that all seems like a good idea, right? Something that could be marketed inside the country and outside the country. Yes. And this year, for the first time ever, we had homemade production of beer. Oh. People started being very, very interested in beer production in small scale. So do you think any of these folks will make money? Oh, they already done it. We have very good stories to tell about people finishing our seminars and start working on uh, what they learned here. Dr. Vangelos Vergos of the American Farm School in Thessaloniki, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. The United Nations Special Envoy for Syria says he's quitting. Kofi Annan won't be looking to renew his mandate when it expires at the end of this month. His mission to try and negotiate a peaceful end to the violence in Syria has been frustrated by the ongoing fighting on the ground. But today, Annan also said he cannot go on without the backing of the UN Security Council. At a time when we need, when the Syrian people desperately need action, there continues to be finger-pointing and name-calling in the Security Council. Western powers, including the United States, have been unable to prevent Russia and China from vetoing action on Syria by the Security Council. Also today, there was another dire warning for the people of Syria. The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization and the World Food Program say three million Syrians will need food assistance over the next six months. Farms and crops are being abandoned because of the fighting, and the specter of widespread hunger now looms over the war-torn nation. Caroline Horford is a spokesperson for the World Food Program in London. Caroline, explain to me how bad this food crisis really is in Syria. You know, we think of places in Africa where there have been droughts for years and wars for years as, you know, incredible trouble spots. Is Syria getting to that point? Is that what we're talking about? very difficult to compare, you know, because clearly Syria would not be comparable with various countries in Africa, certainly that I've visited. But at the same time, when you've had 16 months of conflict, people haven't been able to farm their land. They've also gone away perhaps to, to fight in this war, who knows? And it seems that the whole country is really being held to ransom, as it were, by, by this ongoing 
conflict with no particular end in sight. So I would say that the situation is really dire because clearly we we will need to be bringing in more food uh, simply because they haven't been able to produce enough themselves. Um, and to do that, obviously, you've got to have the right sort of corridors. You've got to have the right sort of mechanisms working. <laughs> and, and how do you do that, considering the war that's going on? Three million people around the country of Syria um, in need of food assistance. How, how do you get the assistance to them? Oh, well, you've really hit it spot on there, because um, as it happens, we are struggling to supply people in the embattled city of Aleppo, which is Syria's second city, but it happens to be the most populous. Uh, we've just sent enough for 28,000 people over the next few days, having fed approximately 48,000 people. But we're talking about a population of 3 million here. So um, in some ways, you know, it's, it's not enough, and we need to, to really redouble our efforts. But of course, we're finding it difficult to get either the trucks or the people um, and indeed, when we get to the outskirts of Aleppo, the situation is extremely dangerous. And while we're working with the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, uh, sometimes it's, it's even too dangerous for these guys to, to come out, and they are the bravest of the brave. Now, it isn't just farming that's a problem, or livestock, as you said, but deforestation is another issue. Uh, why is that happening now? Well, that's essentially because the farmers have been turning back uh, to the forest to collect firewood. Um, and I perhaps should have mentioned the fact that there's obviously a shortage of cooking gas and fuel, what with the continuing fighting going on. And some irrigation channels have also been clogged and damaged due to the lack of people around to maintain them. So therefore, we are really looking at a, a, a very severe pattern across the rural parts of Syria where people will need help to get back on their feet. Caroline Herford, spokeswoman for the World Food Program, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Coming up, American Jazz with an Iranian Twist on PRI Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from the Medtronic Foundation, supporting the work of Partners in Health, an organization dedicated to bringing quality health care to the world's poorest people and communities. Learn how to help at PIH.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. The murder case that led to the downfall of a former top Chinese leader isn't over yet. The main suspect is not the dis disgraced official, Bua Xilai. It's his wife. Gu Kailai is facing a death sentence for the murder of British businessman Neil Haywood, who was a family friend. Officials believe he was poisoned. Gu had business dealings with Haywood, who also allegedly helped her son get into a British private school. The world's China correspondent, Mary Kay Magstad, says things don't look good for Gu, who's being represented by government-appointed defense lawyers. In many courts in China, defense lawyers aren't allowed to do a whole lot anyway. In some courts, they're not even allowed to actually offer a defense in the sense of saying that the defendant is not guilty. They can just offer mitigating circumstances to explain why the defendant might have done what they did and to ask for a lesser sentence. Basically, in many Chinese courts, in most Chinese courts, if someone reaches this point where there's an indictment against them and where the government itself and the state news organs are saying the evidence is irrefutable, you can bet that the verdict is already known in terms of whether it's guilty or not guilty. And the only thing that remains to be decided, if it hasn't already been decided, is what her sentence will be. 
Well, in this uh, particular instance, what kind of mitigating circumstances might there be? Well, so this is curious. When the story first broke in April that she was being investigated for the murder of the British businessman Neil Haywood, the story said something about how there had been nefarious activity around the illegal transfer of money. There was information leaked to Western journalists about how Gu had been angry at Neil Haywood because he had asked for a bigger cut of money that she wanted transferred outside of China. Now the state-run media is saying, well, what actually happened is that Neil Haywood threatened Gu Kailai's son and that she was worried and so she needed to act to protect her son, so she decided to poison him. It's also been hinted at that Gu Kailai has in the past had some issues with mental stability, which suggests that maybe some sort of temporary insanity or other sort of mitigating defense strategy might be used. Now, uh, regardless of the legal proceedings, this is obviously a highly political case. Gu's husband, Bo Xilai, served as Minister of Commerce. He's been a senior leader in the Communist Party. And this is the first time a party senior leader or his family is in the hot seat like this. Does it seem that the party has ulterior motives for trying to pin down Bo's wife? Well, it's the first time that a senior party leader's spouse has been accused of murder and, and where it's been brought to court. Certainly in the days of Mao Zedong, party leaders and their families were purged and prosecuted and persecuted on a regular basis. This, by comparison, is a somewhat gentler approach. But yes, the party had been getting rather annoyed with Bo Xilai. He had been amassing a lot of personal power. He had been playing uh, the populist leader to the population in Chongqing, where he was the party chief. And I think other party leaders felt a little threatened by his approach. He also was very close to the head of public security, Zhou Yongkong, who's on the Politburo Standing Committee. That's the nine most powerful people in China. And I think party leaders were looking at Bo being very close to this guy who's controlling all of this money and all of this potential physical might that could be used to back up someone who maybe wants to move things in a different direction. And they're like, uh, no, even before the incident allegedly happened, uh, there had already been rumblings of, you know, we kind of need to keep Bo Xilai in his place. The world's Mary Kay Magstad in Beijing. Thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. Moving east now from Beijing to Pyongyang, a photo out of the North Korean capital has gone viral. It's an unusual shot of the country's young leader, Kim Jong-un. He's got a childish grin on his face as he flies through the air on a roller coaster. He's surrounded by his entourage, as you might expect. They're all looking pretty darned happy, which is unusual in a photo sent from Pyongyang. But there's something else no one seemed to expect. Just in front of Dear Leader Jr. is a young white guy. James West, a reporter with Mother Jones, was curious about who the mysterious foreigner was. So, James, what did you find out? Well, this photo really grabbed my attention like a lot of people that spend time watching the Far East and politics there. This guy is a junior diplomat from the British 
embassy in the capital of North Korea. His name is Barnaby Jones. And this was confirmed to me by a few sources uh, in Beijing and also the Foreign Office in London. They didn't make him available to me to have an interview, but I did learn that he had a fun time on this roller coaster. With, well, uh, he's smiling. He he's looks like he's having fun. He's grinning from ear to ear as he gets, you know, hurled around inside the North Korea propaganda machine. You know, I was curious because it's very rare that a foreigner, a white guy, gets seen with anybody in North Korea, let alone right next to Kim Jong-un, the new leader of North Korea, in a very delicate phase of him establishing power in North Korea. Usually when you think of photos of the dear leader, they're really staged and flat-footed and a bit stilted. Here he's being flung around some amusement park in the capital, seemingly, you know, without any care. Some of the other photos are fascinating too, um, of the dear leader watching synchronized diving James West, first of all, we'll have that picture on our website, theworld.org, for people to see for themselves. But now when you say dear leader, you're talking about the son, right? Kim Jong-un. Right. In the transition, this guy has been amassing power and is wanting to shed off the cloak, I guess, of Kim Jong-il, his dad, by looking a bit more like his grandfather. And his grandfather was known to be a bit more of a people's kind of guy, you know, back-slapping the workers out in the field. I think, you know, Kim Jong-un is trying on a bit more of the charismatic people's leader approach. I wonder if this could backfire, though, James, if people inside North Korea see the difference between these amusement parks, which are well-lit during the evening and so on, and their regular lives. It seems to me that it could really get people angry. I think you're onto something there, Aaron, definitely. Outside of the capital... The country is derelict, it's decrepit, there's no money. The capital is generally used by the regime as a showcase city that foreigners can come to and look at the amazing achievements of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea and help them celebrate it. And yet, after this photo went viral, the uh, official North Korean state website took it down. Right. They seem to have taken it down. And certainly the response from the British government was lukewarm. They didn't make Barnaby Jones available for interview. And one of my favorite parts of the British government response, seemingly it preempted the obvious question, what the hell was one of your young diplomats doing with Kim Jong-un, the new leader of North Korea, by saying, Britain needs to engage actively in the cultural pursuits of North Korea or some such. And so I like how they were getting ahead of that obvious question and, and letting everybody know that it's not just water parks and games in North Korea for their young diplomats. James West is a reporter with Mother Jones magazine. He spoke to us from New York. James, thanks. My pleasure. North Korean propaganda featuring that dragon roller coaster and a British diplomat. As mentioned, the photos at theworld.org. This is PRI. I'm Aaron Schachter. Ahead, London Mayor Boris Johnson is famous for his gaffes, but he knows who to thank for the Olympics. Coca-Cola, the sponsor, they're coughing up uh, for this thing. Well done, Coke. Um, there are lots of other delicious drinks, Pepsi, whatever. I don't feel, oh, oh my God, I got it wrong. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Oh, Boris. PRI's The World is made possible in part by Medtronic employees, proudly supporting the work of United Way. 
United Way helps build pathways out of poverty by mobilizing the caring power of communities around the world, focusing on education, health, and basic needs. Learn how to help at unitedway.org. I'm Aaron Schachter, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Another big day at the London Olympic Games. Michael the Felpinator Phelps won the men's 200 individual medley for a record 16th gold medal, his 20th overall. Kayla Harrison became the first American woman to win gold in judo. And in gymnastics, the women's all-around title went to... All right, relax. We're not going to tell you that one. Watch it tonight. Britain took home some more gold today in shooting, canoeing, and another in cycling, but a road accident threatened to overshadow that. Last night, a man on a bicycle was struck and killed by a bus ferrying journalists from the Olympic Park. The world's Alex Galifant has that story, along with news about bike helmets and the mayor of London. The accident happened last night in Stratford, East London. Police say the cyclist was a 28-year-old man named Daniel Harris. He was struck by a double-decker bus. All this happened on the day that British cyclist Bradley Wiggins won Olympic gold in the men's time trial. Britain doesn't have bike helmet laws, and although it's not clear whether or not Harris was wearing a helmet, it prompted Wiggins to call for making them compulsory. Because ultimately if you get knocked off and you ain't got a helmet on, then how can you kind of argue? Or if you get killed and you ain't got a helmet on should have lights and all those things. So I think once there's laws passed for cyclists, then you're protected and you can say, well, I've done everything to be safe. Britain is experiencing something of a biking boom, fueled in part by Wiggins himself. Only a few weeks ago, he became the country's first winner of the Tour de France too. But despite Wiggins' current golden status in Britain, his call for a bike helmet law was rejected by Britain's main cycling association and by London's mayor, Boris Johnson. The evidence is mixed. I have to say that in countries where they have made them compulsory, it hasn't always necessarily been good for cycling. Some suggest that bike helmet laws discourage people from getting on bikes. And there are few more visible advocates for cycling than Boris Johnson. Two years ago, he introduced a London-wide system of bikes for rent, similar to programmes in some American cities. London's bikes have become known simply as Boris bikes. And it's actually a pretty good moment to consider the mayor, whose full name is the improbably exotic Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. These Olympic Games have shone a spotlight on him like no other. I hear there's a guy, there's a guy called Mitt Romney. He wants to know whether we're ready. Are we ready? That was Johnson in advance of the opening ceremony. He was responding to the Republican presidential candidate's suggestion that London's preparations for the Games had been, quote, disconcerting. Johnson continues to pull off a considerable trick in British politics. He plays the part of an eccentric buffoon, while at the same time pursuing a career marked by indefatigable ambition. The world's best athletes are in London, but yesterday Boris, as he's known, grabbed the attention from them in a park that's screening Olympic events. He took to an elevated zip line and started to slide down, a blue helmet just about containing his mess of blonde hair and a pair of little British flags in his chubby hands. Johnson didn't get all the way across, and he was left hanging in his harness like a baby. Can you get me a rope? After that little moment, Britain's Prime Minister David Cameron said, for any other politician in the world, it would be a disaster. For Boris, it's an absolute triumph. 
Johnson has an off-the-cuff quality that makes him seem less, well, calculating than other politicians. And given the reputation of politicians in general right now, that's quite an asset. Here he was talking about one of the Olympic Games' worldwide sponsors. Coca-Cola, the sponsors, I have no shame in bigging up our sponsor. They're coughing up uh, for this thing. Well done, Coke. Um, there are lots of other delicious drinks. Pepsi, whatever. I don't feel, oh, oh my God, I've got it wrong. Uh, <laughs> never mind. Um, in the afterglow of the opening ceremony and after the first few days of action, there's been political chatter here about Johnson's future. As a member of the same party as David Cameron... Some wonder, could he succeed the current Prime Minister? At the moment, it's little more than that. Silly season chatter. But the British establishment has learned not to discount Boris Johnson, whatever silliness he himself produces next. For The World, I'm Alex Galifant in London. We have more Boris Johnson online at theworld.org. He makes the case that London made the English language. Among those in the Olympic audience today was Russia's president, Vladimir Putin. He was there to watch a Russian get gold in his favorite sport, judo. But before that, he visited with British Prime Minister David Cameron at 10 Downing Street. That was a good sign for Anglo-Russian relations. In recent years, things have been a little frosty, to say the least. Author Angus Roxburgh has written about Putin and served in the Kremlin as a press advisor. Relations between Russia and Britain really have been in the doldrums for many years now. Um, You can date this back really to 2006, when you'll remember the uh, former KGB man, Alexander Litvinenko, who turned against Putin and sought uh, exile in London. Uh, He was murdered in London. Uh, The British authorities believe that uh, the FSB, that's the successor to uh, the the KGB, was responsible. And they've been demanding that the main suspect in the murder be extradited from Russia. And uh, Russia is steadfastly refusing to do that. Today again, obviously they talked about it, but again, there was no progress on that matter. Does this visit come at an opportune time? For Putin, it seems uh, his image is hurting Russia as a whole. He does have a a bad image in the West. He's more concerned not to let things get out of hand in Russia. Um, He's had several laws passed in recent weeks to crack down on the opposition. And I get the impression that he no longer really cares whether the West condemns him for that or not. Now, Angus, you've actually worked uh, with the Kremlin. If Putin were to ask you, Angus, what do you think the best approach is? Is it to maintain good relations with the West, or is it to do, as you just suggested, worry about what's going on domestically? I did say this often through his advisors, um, that he should stop worrying about the West and about opposition. If he is, as he proclaims he is, a Democrat and believes in the democratic system, then he should have nothing to worry about. He is, after all, actually a very popular politician in Russia. So why does he keep cracking down on the opposition on this way? It's a known goal, in my opinion. Did you get the feeling in dealing with advisors that they understand the world as it is, as opposed to the world as it was? Hmm. I I think he does have some very clued up advisors who understand the Western world pretty well. He himself, I think, understands it less well. He has a, a pretty skewed view of democracy. He's extremely worried, paranoid almost, I think, that Western governments are trying to bring about what they call a coloured revolution in Russia, like the orange revolution that we saw in Ukraine, the rose revolution in Georgia, which brought to office pro-Western governments, uh, which 
tried to turn their back on the old Soviet style of doing things. And Putin is still pretty rooted in the old Soviet style of doing mm -hmm. things. He's not a communist, but he's certainly not a democrat. Has there been any consequence to Putin's sort of old school way of thinking as far as uh, relations with the West goes and the UK specifically? Putin does see, I think, the world divided into us and them. He is extremely resistant to what he sees as Western interference in Russian affairs. And I think actually that that also helps to explain why he is against what he sees as Western interference in Syria. He simply is against the idea of Western countries, particularly the United States, laying down the, the law and trying to decide who should rule in, in other countries because he's afraid they will try to do the same in Russia. Now, we are speaking today, of course, because Putin is at the Olympics, the next Olympics in Russia, in Sochi. What, what do you think Putin wants to get out of those games? Yeah, this is a big priority for him, the Winter Olympics in Sochi in, in 2014. He wants it to be a major success. Um, I think that's also part of the reason why he appeared in London today. I think he, he wants there to be some sort of continuity between these apparently very successful games and the games which he wants to host in Sochi in 2014. He will, of course, be president, and you can be sure that he will be there reaping all the sort of propaganda benefit that he can from those games. Angus Roxburgh, author of the book The Strong Man, Vladimir Putin and the Struggle for Russia, speaking to us from Bratislava. You could say Putin can claim another success. After more than two decades, Russia is finally set to join the World Trade Organization later this month. By some estimates, the U.S. could double its exports to Russia in the next five years. But there's a catch. In the U.S., there's a Cold War-era law that prevents normal trade relations between the two countries, and many American companies, ranchers, and farmers want it repealed. The world's Jason Margolis has more. To understand why U.S. companies won't be able to trade freely with Russia anytime soon, we need a brief history lesson. In the 1970s, Soviet Jews, many of whom faced persecution, were prevented from emigrating from the USSR. Svetlana Boim was one of them. She's now a professor of Slavic and comparative literature at Harvard University. I was born in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. Um, I came to the United States as a refugee. The reason I was able to enter the United States and exit the former Soviet Union was thanks to the Jackson-Wanek Amendment. The Jackson-Vanek Amendment was passed by Congress in 1974. The amendment denied equal trading rights to countries restricting immigration. It was designed to put pressure on Soviet leaders to open their borders. Many argue it worked. Some 1.5 million Soviet Jews were able to leave. And among them was the family of Sergei Brin, the founder of Google, many Nobel laureates, poets, artists, and just ordinary citizens who wanted to change their life drastically. Russia no longer restricts emigration the same way. But nearly four decades later, in America, the Jackson-Vanek Amendment remains in place and is a technical barrier to full, normalized trade. So to have Jackson-Vanek Amendment now, it's absolutely, it's, it's a comedy. It's absolute absurd. It's, it's totally ridiculous. That's Fyodor Lukyanov, editor-in-chief of the journal Russia and Global Affairs in Moscow. Many American businesses agree with Lukyanov. They argue that the Jackson-Vanek Amendment puts them at a competitive disadvantage to other nations. And the Cold War law doesn't serve any practical purpose. Svetlana Boim says that may be so, but the spirit of the amendment remains important. Yes, we moved beyond Cold War, but it does not mean that there is 
no return to authoritarian practices. Situation now has worsened in Russia. And you wonder if you really need something legal now to preserve the gains. Many members of Congress feel this way. They've come up with an idea, repeal the Jackson-Vanek Amendment and replace it with a new law, one that targets human rights abuses in Russia today. The legislation now working its way through Congress is called the Sergei Magnitsky Act. Which was named after my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, who was arrested by corrupt officials in Russia about three years ago and then slowly tortured and killed in a Russian prison at the age of 37. Bill Browder is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management in London. Not long ago, Browder's fund was the largest foreign investor in Russia, and he didn't like the way the Russians were doing business. When we started to invest in the companies and do the research into what was going on in the companies, we discovered that in almost all the companies, they weren't earning any profits because all the profits were being stolen by the um, oligarchs and management teams. Browder went on a campaign to expose the fraud. In 2005, he was detained at the Moscow airport, declared a threat to national security, and expelled from Russia. Browder supports the new Magnitsky bill, which would impose visa sanctions and asset freezes on certain Russian officials. This is the only leverage we have in the West dealing with really horrific things that are going on inside Russia. We're talking about gross human rights abuses where journalists, opposition figures, whistleblowers and other types of people are being arrested, tortured, and killed. Russians don't respect anything other than leverage, and we have it, and we should use it. Here's what the Russian government thinks about the Magnitsky bill, says Fyodor Lukyanov. Official reaction is extremely negative. It is seen as um, a very clear intervention in Russian domestic affairs and an attempt to put pressure on the Russian state, because those who are uh, in the list, they are officials, they are public servants. Russian President Vladimir Putin has said Russia would retaliate if the Magnitsky bill is passed. But Fyodor Lukyanov says human rights activists and some Russian journalists have welcomed it. Svetlana Boim at Harvard has also heard this from journalist friends in Russia. Boyne believes Russia would benefit from the Magnitsky bill. It would send a very important message to Russian state, but also would be a kind of some mode of protection, hopefully, for Russian legal community and journalistic community, which is now in great danger. But the Obama administration has been less than enthusiastic about the Magnitsky bill. They worry it could do damage to an already testy relationship between the two nations. For The World, I'm Jason Margolis. You might want to keep that story in mind as you listen to today's GeoQuiz. Who doesn't love old-fashioned diners? You know, the ones with red vinyl booths and Route 66 signs hanging on the wall and where milkshakes and burgers are served up 24-7? Well, we're looking for the Starlight Diner, and it's not off any interstate highway in the States. It's nowhere near Route 66. Actually, it's closer to Pushkinskaya and Chekhovskaya metro stops. The diner's TV screens are tuned to the Olympics this summer, so customers don't miss their hometown athletes on the Russian gymnastics team. So where is this Starlight Diner that serves up a great strawberry shake for about 300 rubles? We'll hear more about that and get the answer just ahead.
This is PRI. The World is brought to you by PRI with support from PBS Learning Media, providing accessible, on-demand educational content to teachers nationwide. Thousands of resources at your fingertips from PBS Learning Media. More information online at pbslearningmedia.org. I'm Aaron Schachter. This is The World. Time to check in with someone who can answer today's geo-quiz. We were looking for an international city that's home to the Starlight Diner. It's a place with vinyl booths, a jukebox, and $10 milkshakes. And it has a reputation for serving up some of the best burgers in the world. Megan Steintrager is an editor at Gourmet Live. And Megan, you've compiled your list of the world's best burgers. But first, at the risk of sounding like an ugly American... Can you really get a good burger outside the U.S.? It's funny that you should ask that because when I first started talking to my fellow uh, food editors and food lovers, everyone said, never, it's impossible, you can't get a good burger outside of the U.S. But when I dug a little deeper, I found that, yes, absolutely, you can. Like any other kind of food, uh, it's all about quality ingredients prepared very well, and those exist all over the world. Now, when you say a good burger... Do you mean a good burger by an American standard, or do you just mean a hamburger that's good? Right. Well, we were really looking for burgers that were in the American style, although, of course, uh, every location offers its own twist on the burger. But I was thinking about people who really wanted to have that all-American experience with the you know juicy, gooey cheeseburger um, over the top, which is uh, certainly something that you get at the Starlight Diner. Where is the Starlight Diner? It is in Moscow. Their cowboy has barbecue sauce, cheddar cheese, bacon, caramelized onions. So it's just this kind of, you know, fun. I think you would want to share it with uh, three or four people. Um, <laughs> it's kind of a heart attack on a plate. Exactly. All right. You know, maybe once a year kind of burger indulgence. Well, listen to this. We've got uh, someone from the Starlight Diner explaining their burgers. We have many burgers with uh, cheese. Cheeseburger, burger, cowboy burger. Bacon blue cheeseburger is good. Uh, we, uh, it's with... Um, Blue cheese dressing and topped with uh, crispy bacon. Super bacon cheeseburger, double-double cheeseburger. The really big Sean burger. Uh, ham, bacon, egg, and cheeseburger. Mm. Do you want to use bacon or not? Super bacon cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that one jumped out at me, too. <laughs> Obviously, they're kind of mixing there the uh, American style with a bit of a local spin. Right. So if I were in, uh, in New Zealand and could go to Fergburger in Queenstown, which was another one of the places uh, that's, that's on my list, I would certainly get the Big Owl, which has beetroot on it, because oh. why not, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't love beets on their burgers? Right, of course, yeah. of course. <laughs> you think burgers, um, you think beets. Oh, oh, certainly. Well, I do think that that earthiness of a beet, if you are a beet lover, as I am, which not everyone is, uh, would play nicely with the, the grass-fed New Zealand beef, which is the real attraction to me for this burger. So anywhere else you would go if you could get on a plane right now? 
Uh, well, I'm always happy to go to Paris, and uh, there at Le Dali, you can get another uh, over-the-top burger with mayonnaise, you know, a, a beautiful sort of French aioli. Um, it's a blend of different kinds of beef, so they use chuck and beef ribs, so it's really fatty, I'm sorry to say again, <laughs> flavorful cuts of meat that they grind fresh daily, which is the same thing that makes a, a burger place in, in the United States stand out. Um, they're taking really good care for their ingredients. I'm not sure I'd go to Paris for a hamburger. <laughs> now, uh, if you were limited to a uh, 10-block radius, Megan, where would you go? You're in New York City, right? Well, if I were near my home in Brooklyn, I would probably go to, uh, there's a place called Bark, which is also known for its hot dogs, but their hamburgers are also excellent. And Megan, if any listeners have suggestions for the best hot dogs around the world, send them to our website, theworld.org. Gourmet Live editor Megan Steintreger telling us about the world's best burgers, soon to be world's best hot dogs, including those served up in Moscow, the answer to our geo-quiz. Megan, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Iranian-American jazz musician Hafez Modirzadeh gets down to the basics in his music. It's all in the notes. The saxophonist and composer has spent decades trying to find ways to weave Western scales with other musical modes from around the world. The results come together on his new album, Post-Chromodal Out. Bruce Wallace has the story. Hafez Madirzadeh was 14 and at summer camp when he heard Charlie Parker for the first time. I just wanted to know what it must have felt like to feel that free that liberated and connected to sound. Madirzadeh's quest for the freedom he heard in Parker's playing led him deep into jazz music and to music conservatory. But he was also listening to other sounds, ones outside traditional Western music. His Iranian-American father used to sing classical Persian songs around the house in San Jose, California. And after conservatory, Madirzadeh studied with a master Persian violinist. One thing Madirzadeh found in Persian music was notes that just aren't there in Western music. Adding these new tones got him to phrases like this. Pianist Vijay Iyer saw Madirzadeh play back in the early 90s. I remember just being blown away by it. It was kind of terrifying, actually. Iyer says it wasn't like those cross-cultural musical encounters where people from two different traditions play together but don't really find common musical ground. Like just taking oil and water and shaking really hard. (laughs) (laughs) That kind of thing. Actually, what he did is more like what Coltrane did, which is um, dig deep into the fundamentals of music and find something that the whole human family has in common. Musicians on his new album, Post Cremodal Out, include some longtime collaborators like Iraqi American trumpeter Amir El Safar. Vijay Iyer plays piano. To get Iyer outside the realm of Western scales, Madirzadeh had the piano retuned. I asked Iyer what it was like to sit down at a piano that looked like every piano he'd ever played, but didn't really sound like it. Well, it really thrusts you into the moment, you know, like you can't rely on habits or anything. You just have to listen to what's happening and deal with that. Not with what you want to happen, (laughs) but what's actually happening. So in some ways, it's uh, liberating. 
Giving musicians this new kind of freedom seems to be a big part of it for Madeira Day. He talks about his piano tunings and his musical ideas generally. It's being a kind of bridge that he hopes will carry a younger generation to new places. I'm sure that there's going to be some brilliant, brilliant young pianists that will take this idea and create some beautiful, beautiful music, and that will say things that will really resonate differently in people's hearts and minds and ears. In his own way, Madeira Day is passing along the kind of freedom he found many years ago in Charlie Parker's music. For the world, I'm Bruce Wallace. Stop by and see us at theworld.org. That's where you can find our videos and slideshows. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash PRITheworld. Our Twitter handle is PRITheworld. I'm World Aaron. From the Nan and Bill Harris studios at WGBH, I'm Aaron Schachter. Thanks for listening. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston, supported in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, which believes that a great nation deserves great art, the Freeman Foundation, the Luce Foundation's Henry R. Luce Initiative on Religion and International Affairs, the Rita Allen Foundation, and by the WGBH Fund for Environmental Reporting, whose donors include the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting a cooperative approach to solving our critical environmental problems while we still can. PRI, Public Radio International.